trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm glad you could join our growing group of wrong thinkers. As opposed to group thinkers. I think. Anyhow, if we're going to revel in wrong think, we may as well do it right. We've got a lot of great stuff up for discussion today. Let me start by thanking the sponsors who make this show possible. I hope that you'll take the time to visit the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and see these sponsors for yourself. I've got links to all of their various businesses, ways to contact them. They include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, hslammo.com, pure-light.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. So food shortages may be the furthest thing from people's minds, or at least most people's minds. How many folks do you suppose are sitting around worrying, hey, is there going to be enough food when we need it? My guess is going to be not very many. But I have been watching Michael Snyder for the last couple of years, and he has been consistently warning about food shortages. Now, you know, there might be, you know, some people could say, well, that sounds like chicken little syndrome, and maybe this is just his particular obsession. The trouble is, it's not like he's prophesying this kind of thing. He's not, uh, you know, I am predicting it will be, don't tell me, August 14th, you know, this is when the food is going to be hard to find. But there's some weird stuff that's happening. Look, economically, I don't think it's any secret that we have an economy that is um, it's on life support, and it doesn't appear to be getting a whole lot better. There are some promising signs, but overall, there's a ton of behind-the-scenes stuff, including incredible amounts of spending and bringing incredible amounts of money into the money supply. Um, look, you know you're paying more in gas. You know you're paying more in food. But the possibility of food shortages, well, that's just, you know, that's, that's unthinkable for most people. So Michael Snyder says, look, for decades, Americans haven't needed to be concerned about food prices. Yes, prices would always go up by a little bit each year. But he says, in general, we've been extremely blessed for a very long time. Our supermarkets have always been packed with food, and we could always count on the fact that prices would be about the same a month or two down the road. Well, unfortunately, things are now changing, and not in a good way. A massive wave of inflation has hit agricultural commodities, and food producers have felt forced to pass those cost increases along to consumers. That's the pain you're feeling at the grocery, mar- the grocery store right now. Michael Snyder says, unfortunately, many experts are anticipating that the price hikes that we're currently witnessing are just the beginning. So even though food prices have already become quite painful... He says they are never going to be any lower than they are at this moment. Okay, so let me pull just a quick parallel to this. And and maybe only some of you will understand this, but uh, those of you who are involved in the shooting sports, let's just say somebody who was looking to purchase ammo over the last year and a half. Do you remember what it feels like? 
When you go to the store, maybe you go several times a week because you're thinking, man, I really got to get some shotgun shells, but I can't find anything. Now picture that with food. Yeah, there's some available, but it's super expensive. You know, I'm talking ammo. You can always find some ammo. It's In some ways, it appears that the, the availability is starting to come back. But for the last year and a half, it has been just about full-on panic for anybody involved in the shooting sports who's out there actively looking for ammo. So you don't want to find yourself in a similar situation when it comes to your food. Michael Snyder says, looking forward, there are several factors that are likely to cause, to combine rather, to cause food inflation to accelerate even more in the months ahead. And then he follows up with five specific reasons why you should stockpile food right now. Now, before I go one step further, I I have to again point out that I don't share this information with you because I want you scared and I don't want you angry this is simply a matter of let's pay attention maybe nothing will come of this Okay, best case scenario well we were concerned but it turns out those concerns were misplaced but if there's some legitimacy to this if there is in fact reason to be concerned maybe this is the time to be you know getting a few things in order So here's the first reason why we should be stockpiling food right now. Number one, supermarkets are feverishly stockpiling food, and the Wall Street Journal is reporting they're doing this in anticipation of the highest price increases in recent memory. Now, I actually read this uh, article yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, and you know what? It gets a little bit spooky when you start to see that, uh, you know, the stores themselves and industry itself is starting to uh, get a little bit nervous. They're glancing around. Oh, wow. You guys see what we're seeing? From the Wall Street Journal, it says supermarkets are stocking up on everything from sugar to frozen meat before they get more pricey. Girding for what some executives anticipate will be some of the highest price increases in recent memory. End quote. Michael Snyder says this only makes good sense or good business sense. See, if you can get inventory now for significantly less than you will be able to get it for later, well, that'll help your bottom line. Now, the Wall Street Journal is admitting that all this stockpiling is driving shortages of some staples, but it's expected that those shortages will be temporary. Now, Michael Snyder says, I can't remember a time when we've seen anything quite like this. At some point, or at this point, rather, some companies are purchasing up to 25% more food than normal. And here's a quote from the article he's citing. Dave Smith, CEO of U.S.'s largest wholesaler, Associated Wholesale Grocers, told the Wall Street Journal they've been buying 15 to 20 percent more goods, particularly packaged foods with long shelf lives. We're buying a lot of everything, said Smith. Our inventories are up significantly over the same period last year. At Spartan Nash in Michigan, the retailers bought around 20 to 25 percent more than normal, including frozen meat. End quote. So there's your first reason. Reason number two, the U.S. government is going to continue recklessly spending money. And the Federal Reserve is going to continue pumping more giant mountains of fresh cash into the financial system. Now, Snyder says the Biden administration doesn't seem to have an off button and neither does the Fed. The U.S. national debt is moving up toward the $29 trillion mark very rapidly, and the Fed's balance sheet have more than, has more than doubled over the past year. 
So unless there is some new sort of dramatic reversal, and he says, I don't see why there would be, this continual flow of new money will continue to push food prices even higher. You understand, this is inflation at work, right? It's not that the food producers are being greedy. Well, now we know we can make some money on people. It's a matter of your money, including whatever you have in savings, is being diluted in its purchasing power, and it simply buys less and less because of that mountain of money being uh, shoveled into the financial system. Okay, here's one that I'm sure you will notice and probably relate to. Reason number three why you should be stockpiling food right now, gas prices keep surging. And this is making it more expensive to transport food around the country. According to the AAA Gas Price Index, the average price of a gallon is up 56% from what it was last May. Transport costs are also rising, with gas prices rising 56% in May from a year ago. On Friday, the AAA Gas Price Index pegged the national average gas price at 308, up from 217 just a year ago. Reason number four, the endless mega drought in the western states continues to intensify. In fact, if you look at the latest U.S. drought monitor map, it's a horror show. We haven't seen anything like this since the Dust Bowl days of the 30s, and water levels are dropping dangerously low. For instance, even the water level in the Great Salt Lake is expected to hit the lowest level in 170 years this summer. From the article, the lake's levels are expected to hit a 170-year low this year. It comes as the drought has the U.S. West bracing for a brutal wildfire season and coping with already low reservoirs. Utah Governor Spencer Cox, a Republican, has begged people to cut back on lawn watering and pray for rain. So because there's not enough water, farmers are having to dramatically reduce the amount of crops that they're growing. That kind of stands to reason, right? So we're going to come back to this in just a few moments. We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the remaining reasons why you should be stocking up on food. There's only one more to go, but look, again, this is not to to get you operating on fear. Fearful people seldom think about what's what's going on or what they're doing. They're just acting, you know, on impulse or on instinct, fight or flight. This is a time to be pretty rational. But it's also a time to face some unpleasant facts. And maybe stockpiling food is a really good idea. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to mention that uh, one of our sponsors is the incredible Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. And if you are, uh, if you are moving to or you reside in the state of Utah, you need to pay very close attention to what I'm about to tell you because it's a, it's a really intense real estate market right now. People who, uh, for instance, are moving to the Intermountain West, and there's an awful lot of them, like crazy growth going on, they're finding that uh, the competition for homes 
is very, very intense. So if you find the home of your dreams, you better have your financing in order. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage can help you. Decades of experience. They know exactly what the lenders need. They know what the borrowers need. And whether it's VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, they can get you your loan without delay. They've got the stability. They've got the clout to do it. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And you can call her at 435-703-4522 or visit the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Tower 1 and Tower 2. All right, then. Talking about five specific reasons why you should stockpile food right now. And it's pretty crazy with, with you know, especially the, the drought out west. I'm seeing this myself, and I'm surrounded by farm fields. But because there's not enough water, many farmers are having to dramatically reduce the amount of crops they're growing. For instance, small farmer Mindy Perkovich is only growing produce on one of her seven acres at this point, And she openly admits she doesn't even know if she's going to have enough water for that. Perkovich typically typically grows things like turnips, squash, and tomatoes for the local market on seven acres. But this season, she's had to cut her crops down to less than a single acre. And she says, I don't know if we're going to have water to keep that alive. Financially, I can't even really express how dramatic it's changed in the last couple of years, water-wise. Because without water, we can't grow crops. And without crops, we have nothing to sell to our customers. End quote. Now, agricultural production in the western states is going to be lower than originally anticipated this year. That, too, is going to put upward pressure on food prices in the coming months. And one more thing, just to, uh, this is reason number five why you should be stockpiling food. On top of everything else, an enormous plague of grasshoppers is now causing massive headaches for farmers in our western states. This is almost sounding biblical, isn't it? Michael Snyder says, look, the extremely hot and dry conditions are perfect for grasshoppers, and they've been multiplying like crazy. In some areas, the swarms are so thick, it can appear that the earth is moving, and sometimes there are swarms so large they're actually appearing on radar. Now, seven states are being hit particularly hard, and the federal government's going to begin a large-scale spraying campaign, which may reduce the plague, but all of the experts agree it's not going to stop it. And what that means is grasshoppers will continue to eat crops on a massive scale for many months to come. That is yet another factor that will be driving up food prices. So to summarize, the outlook for the months ahead, it's pretty bleak. And a number of factors are going to combine to push prices significantly higher. So if you can afford to stock up, he says you should be doing so. Our leaders insist that this bout of inflation is just transitory. And you can believe them if you like. But Michael Snyder says the truth is that high inflation is here to stay. And what we've experienced so far is just the tip of the iceberg. Now, I have to apologize in advance if that gives you, you know, a sense of hopelessness or a sense of, you know, a little shiver of fear going up the back of your spine. It's bad news. Okay, I'm I'm not going to pretend otherwise. I don't know what the silver lining is, but I know this. Right now, there is plenty of food on the store shelves. You haven't seen panic. I mean, if you want to put it into perspective, think back to the early days of lockdown, you know, in March of uh, 2020. 
Think about what that was like to go into the grocery store and see people in full panic mode. You know, dragging two and three shopping carts along, deer in the headlights, look in their eyes. Uh, uh, did we get enough toilet paper? You know, I mean, fist fights breaking out over toilet paper. It was surreal. And I'll admit, I was one of the people who was just going, okay, did not expect to see this. Don't get caught in that trap again. Don't, don't find yourself going, man, I wish I had done something earlier while there was, you know, relatively little panic and people were still, you know, feeling fairly safe. This is the time to quietly, but consistently put aside a little bit extra. You know, you're not going to lose value. It's, if, it's, if it's food that you're buying that you're going to actually eat, I'm talking canned goods and things like this, long-term items, you're not going to be out anything. You will eventually eat it. But those prices continually going up, this is, this is going to be bad news for people, especially those on a fixed income. And I would encourage you as you make those preparations, as you look around and say, okay, we're stocking up, we're, we're going to be okay it's time to look around you and and pay attention to your neighbors. Do you have an old widow or, you know, someone who is on a fixed income? You know, might not be a bad idea to put aside a little bit extra for them. No, you're not duty bound to do so, but I'm just thinking it might be a smart thing to do. Merely a suggestion, nothing more. Hey, as long as we're being politically incorrect here, or as long as we're thinking outside the box... Might as well question the conventional wisdom that's driving the push for vaccination. And I mean, it's it's getting to the point now where um, that push for vaccination is getting downright insistent. Well, what if we could come up with some good scientific reasons for waiting to get the COVID vaccine? And you do understand, I, I feel like I really need to, to clarify here. Simply because someone says, you know, I think I'm going to wait to get the COVID vaccine. That is not the same thing as, you know, being a vaccine denier, an anti-vaxxer, and whatever other epithets, you know, people may want to hang on you because you're not getting with the program. Pandra Selivanov, writing for AmericanThinker.com, has some pretty good reasons here why it might be a good idea to wait to get the COVID vaccine. Pandra says, I voted for Donald Trump twice, but that has nothing to do with my hesitancy to get the vaccine. I'm a Christian. That has nothing to do with it either. Even the fact that I had COVID and should be immune doesn't matter to me. Pandra says, my reason is based on science and science alone. It is an experimental vaccine. It doesn't have FDA approval. And although mRNA vaccines have been studied for years, they were not used before. Pandras Ilivanov says, my biggest fear of the vaccine is that I can't get any information about why mNRA vaccines were not used before COVID. I can Google plenty of information about how wonderful the vaccine is, but I can't find anything at all about why mNRA vaccines mRNA vaccines were not approved for human trials before. Now, there's a lot of invective directed at people who are hesitant about getting the vaccine. In fact, the author here says, I've been called a murderer for being, for being hesitant, and I've been accused of refusing to get the vaccine because of my political leanings. 
I believe Dr. Fauci had a little meltdown over something like this the other day ago. I've also been called a religious fanatic. But Pandras Elevenov says, I don't think asking about the science of mRNA vaccination means I'm a Jesus freak, a Trumpanzi, or a serial killer. When I'm called these names, it doesn't make me think I should agree with the name callers and run out to get the vaccine. So I guess there's something to think about there in terms of how we approach this. We got to take a real quick break. We'll come back to this topic in just a few moments. I don't know if you need scientific reasons for waiting to get the COVID vaccine. If I can be perfectly honest, the harder someone pushes to coerce me to do something, the more resistant I become. Mainly because I'm curious, why are they pushing so hard? Why why are they acting the part of a used car salesman? I think that's, uh, you know, nature taking over. I'm defending myself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Don't forget, you can always check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I always will link to the various articles and commentators that I am sharing with you in this program, mainly because I know that there are people who want to take a closer look. They want to dig a little bit deeper and uh, better their understanding of what's going on. So that's why I do it. It's a labor of love, but I do it because I want you to to have more information at your fingertips. What you do with that information is up to you. There's nothing implied that you're going to agree with me. We're going to be marching in lockstep. I just want you to have access to good information, and so I always include these links in the show notes. Sharing an article here from Pandra Selivanov, author of The Pardon, a historical novel about the thief on the cross, but this is about scientific reasons for waiting to get the COVID vaccine. And when she talks about being called a religious fanatic or being accused of being a murderer for being hesitant to get the vaccine or refusing it because of political leanings, she says, you know, when I'm called names like Jesus freak or Trumpanzi or serial killer, it doesn't make me think that I should agree with the name caller and run out to get the vaccine. It makes me think that if I'm being treated hatefully for asking scientific questions, there must be something wrong with the science of the vaccine. So here are a few of the questions that uh, Pandra Selivanov is asking. Things like, is mRNA unstable and likely to cause unwanted side effects? Does it create an unacceptably strong immune response? Was it some technical problem like delivery system problems that caused mRNA vaccines to be restricted? She says, I'm not opposed to getting the vaccine if I have reason to believe that it's safe and will not harm my health in some unforeseen fashion. But here's the kicker. Tandris Levinov says, since I can't get any information at this time on these points, I will wait until FDA approval of the vaccine. I'm not interested in adding to the pool of subjects that have been created by the millions who've rushed to get the vaccine. There are enough people who've been vaccinated under emergency approval protocols. They don't need to swell their ranks, nor do I need to risk my health 
with an experimental vaccine. I prefer to wait until there are enough long-term data to scientifically show the vaccine is safe. Kind of makes me wonder what the fact checkers on Twitter and Facebook and other social media sites would do about this. In fact, I'm actually having some serious questions about, you know, will will this message be able to reach you without some kind of, you know, fact checker warning popping up? I guess we'll see. Why aren't we allowed to question such things? Why is this considered such a subversive, antisocial thing to do? And I don't have the answer for you, other than somebody really wants us to get that vaccine. And I'm just not convinced. It's because, hey, they're just concerned for us. They, they really want to help us. I don't know. It seems a little more coercive than that. And when things start to get coercive, that's when I start to think maybe, maybe there's a, an ulterior motive at play here. Shifting gears. There are official narrative managers out there working day and night to make sure that whatever's being reported as news comports with the official narrative of what we are supposed to believe. I suspect one of the reasons that you're listening to this program is because you have decided for yourself, there's more out there than I'm being told or there's more out there than is being talked about and I want to know. So I applaud you for that choice. Here's one to think about, though, since we have the official narrative managers really pushing the deadly insurrection talking point anytime they discuss the January 6th events at the U.S. Capitol. Do you know the fact remains that the only life deliberately taken that day was that of Ashley Babbitt, who was killed by an armed government agent? That's the only deliberate act of violence that took a human life that day. But it's interesting how the identity of her killer is being treated like a state secret. Saw this uh, op-ed in Issues and Insights. Who shot Ashley Babbitt and why is it a state secret? Now, look, this isn't an invitation to start, you know, going down the rabbit hole in search of another, you know, sexy conspiracy theory. This is just questioning that official narrative and saying, you know, what, uh, what is it? What else are we not being told And why would that information be kept from us? The editorial staff at Issues and Insights said more than six months after the events at the U.S. Capitol that led to the shooting death of protester Ashley Babbitt, the officer who killed her remains a secret, as carefully guarded as any in Washington, D.C. Why? Real Clear Investigations reporter Paul Sperry, who's been trying for months to learn the name of the U.S. Capitol police officer who pulled the trigger, reported that a name surfaced inadvertently at a February House meeting. Sperry uncovered a transcript and reviewed the C-SPAN video from the hearing. During that inquiry, the sergeant, the House Sergeant-at-Arms appears to name the shooter, or at least he mentions the officer's last name in the context of that shooting. Sperry deduced, based on other available information, that he was returning, referring rather to U.S. Capitol Police Lieutenant Michael L. Byrd. Now, Sperry said the department hasn't denied that Byrd was the cop who killed Babbitt, although it did so when another officer's name started getting bandied about. Weirdly, Byrd's name is deleted from the CNN and C-SPAN transcripts of that hearing, but was contained in the Congressional Quarterly transcripts, and it can also be heard on the C-SPAN video. Why does this matter? 
Well, the family understandably wants to know, and the public deserves the details about the shooting. Babbitt was not armed at the time, nor was she threatening anyone with physical harm. She was trying to climb through a broken window. And despite all the claims of an armed incursion into the Capitol building by Trump supporters, there was only one gun fired on that date. That was the one that killed Babbitt. Then there's also the question of whether the officer involved has any history of misconduct. And the identity of Babbitt's killer matters for reasons even beyond a family's grief. As Sperry notes, this saga reveals something that's also deeply troubling, the fact that the U.S. Capitol Police officers enjoy special protections, courtesy of Congress, that no other police department in the country does. And that likely contributed to its woeful handling of what happened on January 6th. Sperry notes, unlike other police forces, U.S. Capitol Police does not have to disclose records on police misconduct. He goes on, more than 700 complaints were lodged against Capitol Police officers between 2017 and 2019. But Brass won't say what the alleged violations were or how the department resolved them. They also won't disclose how many complaints are in any individual officer's file. And while the U.S. Capitol Police has an inspector general, he does not make reports public, unlike other agency watchdogs. The Capitol Police won't even reveal how many sworn officers it has on hand. Now, they also don't have to comply with Freedom of Information Act requests. In contrast to the Secret Service, which not only has to respond to such inquiries, but publicly releases audits by its inspector general. So, while the names of police officers involved in shootings are routinely made public across the country, the identity of Ashley Babbitt's killer remains officially shrouded in secrecy for reasons only the U.S. Capitol Police can explain. As if having an unaccountable police force guarding the Capitol isn't bad enough, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is busy expanding the U.S. Capitol Police well beyond the Capitol grounds to include satellite offices in California and Florida with more regions planned. Why? Well, the U.S. Capitol Police says it's to provide enhanced security for members of Congress outside the National Capitol region. I don't know, there's a very Gestapo-y vibe to what they're, pre- what they're recommending here. This expanded role is premised, mind you, on the trumped-up claims about the events on January 6th that have been routinely and falsely described as an armed insurrection. So while Congress is busy demanding greater accountability and transparency from state and local police departments, which deal with deadly threats every single day, it's content to let the Capitol Police operate outside public scrutiny. This is typical of Congress, which seems to delight in exempting itself from the laws it forces on everyone else. Now, Sperry reports that some lawmakers on the Congressional Committee that oversees the U.S. Capitol Police want to change this, and they should. And a good place to start would be to release the information from its investigation into the shooting death of Ashley Babbitt, including the name of the officer involved. Seriously, Capitol Police outposts being created around the country? Yeah, that does not sound like a really great idea. Unless we're trying to somehow federalize police, in which case that's a great idea. All right, we're coming up on our break. We got to take a real quick time out here. We will be back. We're going to talk about heroes in uh, the next segment. You know, there was a time when we really understood what heroes were. And, and to be a hero, you had to do heroic stuff. We kind of lost that. Anders Koskinen has a great take on how we once viewed heroes, courtesy of Jules Verne. 
We'll get to that just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thank you once again for being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. At the bottom of the show notes, you will find links to all of my sponsors. You'll also find a couple of links that I hope will intrigue you enough that you click on them and maybe even act on them. One is to subscribe to the podcast. I would really love you to be a regular subscriber. And all, all that happens when you subscribe is you get a notification every time a new episode drops, which uh, most of the time that's going to be two episodes per day, Monday through Friday. I know I'm, I'm full of hot air. I have a lot to talk about, but hey, <laughs> that's how it goes. And the second one is if you would like to become a supporter of this program, you can do so through the patron link, which is also in the show notes. Look, a dollar a month, five dollars a month, ten dollars a month. I have a number of wonderful supporters. If you are willing to help out, if you find value and, and say this is something I'd like to support and see continue to go on, please feel free to do so. I treat all of that as, as sacred funds that uh, are for the purpose of speaking the truth as I best understand it. So you're not likely to see me driving around in a new Ferrari or anything, but uh, this helps me to focus on what I do, which is to find and disseminate the best information that I can so that you can better understand the world around you and use your influence as wisely as possible. Well, let's take a moment here to talk about heroism. And I don't want to offend too many people with what I'm about to say, but the word hero has been watered down in, in a lot of ways. And, and look, it can take a lot of different forms. I still think one of the greatest examples of heroism that I've ever seen in my life was a friend of mine um, whose wife was dying of cancer. And watching as this young dad... Um, came to grips with everything that he had to, to deal with, including, you know, um, taking care of his wife, you know, to the end of her life, taking care of their kids. You know, he was working a, a full-time, very stressful job. Um, it was truly heroic to see him, you know, meet all of those family needs and, and, and to, to align his priorities in ways that he needed to. I put it right up there with, you know, the heroism we usually associate with Medal of Honor winners and so forth. But unfortunately, along the way, we, we've seen the word hero co-opted primarily by the state. And I would point to most TV shows or movies. The hero of the movie is, in so many cases, someone who works for government. It's a CIA agent. It's a cop. It's, you know, this detective or anyway. Somewhere it's been decided that, you know, what we really need is we need to look at heroes as people who work for the government. But that wasn't always the case. And American heroism was much more multifaceted once upon a time. Anders Koskinen, in a piece published on intellectualtakeout.org, has a marvelous take on Jules Verne and the loss of American heroism. He says, in the late 19th century, adventurer, adventure and science fiction writer Jules Verne repeatedly praised Americans' ingenuity, inventiveness, and strong work ethic, both in the crafting of his characters and his descriptions of Americans generally. The French author 
exhibited a remarkable appreciation for this people's attitudes and contributions to the world, sometimes to extremes. Take, for instance, from the Earth to the Moon, the premise of which is that a group of ex-Civil War ballistic experts, the Gun Club, having grown bored in peacetime, proposed to build a cannon so large and powerful as to send a projectile to the moon. The entire world is taken up with the Americans' ambitious proposal, and donations pour in from around the globe. Now, Vern's eloquent musings on the transcontinental railroad and around the world in 80 days strongly endorsed this American work ethic, showing the energy and the rapidity with which the rails were laid. It's in these traits, making 19th century Americans such excellent heroes of their stories, which have faded out of the national profile of late. If Vern were writing today, he would likely look beyond our shores for his heroes and doubtless would have fewer kind words to say about contemporary Americans' attitudes and aptitudes. Now, Anders Koskinen says, Consider the change we've undergone. In 1846, the Royal Earl House invented the printing telegraph. In the 1860s, two private companies built North America's first transcontinental railroad, which Vern speaks of as mentioned above. In 1879, Thomas Edison invented the electric light bulb. In 1903, Orville and Wilbur Wright invented the airplane. In 2020, the American government forced businesses to shutter their doors and people to stay home locked behind their own. And the American people accepted this. The solution to government-caused mass unemployment was for the government to freeze evictions and send out checks for everything from stimulus to additional unemployment benefits. Now, in 2021, with many Americans vaccinated, businesses reopened, and life going on pretty much as normal, the old normal, not Dr. Fauci's new normal, Americans still cling to the government as provider and protector while taking the words of so-called experts as gospel and deferring much of life's largest decisions to these bureaucrats. His point is, what a switch from the world that Jules Verne knew. In From the Earth to the Moon, Frenchman Michel Arden lands on American shores, proposing to take up residence inside a specially crafted shell, and so make the journey to the moon in person. Arden, in a speech to some 300,000 persons interested in the success of the project, lauds Jupiter for not having a tilted axis. This, Arden supposes, allows the Jovians to select from regions of their planet, each existing in perpetual states of a given season, a deficit of which he considers a serious flaw of Earth. Arden remarks that if only he we could rectify the Earth's axis, we too could enjoy such locked climate conditions. A proposal taken up at once with cheers by the Americans he's addressing. Quote, and in all probability, if the truth must be told, if the Yankees could only have found the point of application for it, they would have constructed a lever capable of raising the earth and rectifying its axis. It was just this deficiency which baffled these daring mechanicians. End quote. Now, Anders Koskinen says contemporary Americans would not jump at the chance to rectify the earth's axis nor has it been shown even dare to go outside their homes without government permission. With government checks still flowing to out to the workers who were laid off during the pandemic, there are perverse incentives to studiously avoid the diligent hard work that made Americans perfect heroes for Verne's novels. Indeed, as our economy has grown more and more specialized, so have we as people. Skills that were once commonplace, such as changing a tire, 
No longer register as important or useful, at least until a moment of need when it's a bit late to acquire such knowledge. Now he reminds us, when Jules Verne was writing, much of America was a vast expanse of untamed wilderness. Knowing how to clean or how to hunt and clean an animal, which berries to eat, or even how to construct a shelter were necessary skills in the days when even the civilized areas of America were far more rural and sparsely populated than they are today. Europe in Verne's time was still the old world, for the most part urbanized, civilized, and decidedly domesticated. Now America is also urbanized and domesticated. And this has left us writers, accountants, and social media managers all too ready and able to rely on the folks who still maintain more practical skills to provide us with our basic necessities of life. As such, he says, one highly doubts that any randomly selected group of five contemporary American castaways should fare so well as did Cyrus Smith, Neb, Bonadventure Pencroft, Harbert Brown, and Gideon Spillett in the mysterious island. Certainly there's no chance that the contemporary Americans would be able to build telegraph lines. No, it's far more likely they would simply waste away from lack of effort and knowledge. Perhaps while looking longingly at the coconut trees and wondering why some friendly government agent didn't come along and harvest the fruit for them. After all, coconut harvesting was not part of the liberal education requirements at their colleges. Koskinen says the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century were years of American heroes. Pioneers, explorers, soldiers, and inventors dominated the American consciousness. And nearly every man, woman, and child was close enough to the basics of life as to at least partially understand them. Now in the 21st century, we venerate bureaucrats, athletes in controlled sports, and technologists who never stray too far from the comforts of their air-conditioned desks. So those careers may make for good business, he says, but they make for lousy heroes. So I'm sensing a little bit of a call here in Anders Koskinen's article. And, you know, I don't want to apply pressure to you. This is not about coercing you, but I agree that uh, a lot of the heroes we're looking at today are pretty lousy heroes. Seems like you and I might be able to do something about that. My advice would be, first of all, reconsider what the word hero means. And then, secondly, consider living your life in a heroic fashion. By the way, it may not make headlines, but a person who is simply being a good person consistently, day in and day out, is undertaking something that is every bit as heroic as the stuff that is making headlines. This is The Brian Hyde Show.